mí me han dicho que use chaleco. They told me I'd better wear a bulletproof vest, but here I am wearing a sweaty shirt. You are my bulletproof vest. You are brave people. You are the ones protecting me. Let the drug bosses come. Let the killers come and the extortionists. The time of threats is over. I am here. They may threaten me, but they will never break me. That was presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio speaking at a rally in Ecuador shortly before he was killed, gunned down in broad daylight, just one and a half weeks before Ecuador's presidential elections in August. The small South American country, which used to have a reputation of a safe haven in the region, now has one of Latin America's highest murder rates, surpassing Mexico and Brazil. What went wrong? Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. Ecuadorians went to the polls this past Sunday to vote for a new president in a runoff vote. The majority of voters, 52%, chose 35-year-old Daniel Noboa, who beat his opponent, leftist lawyer Luisa Gonzalez. The center-right banana entrepreneur is said to be the country's youngest president when he takes office later this year. Elections were triggered when now outgoing President Guillermo Lasso dissolved the National Assembly back in May, before lawmakers could go through with an impeachment vote against him. Under the government of Lasso, the narco violence exploded. Nearly a dozen politicians were assassinated. One of them was candidate Fernando Villavicencio, the man whose voice we heard earlier. President-elect Noboa, who rose to prominence after he appeared at a debate in a bulletproof vest, after the assassination of Villavicencio, has vowed to return peace to the country. His term will only run through May 2025, which is what remains of Lasso's tenure. How did Ecuador become such a hub for drugs, for cocaine? How did things spiral so out of control? Anna Herberg went to investigate in this in-depth feature. It's presented by Jennifer Collins. Cocaine use in Europe has exploded. In Ecuador, the port of Guayaquil has become a key hub for shipping cocaine to Europe. It marked the beginning of an escalation of violence here in Guayaquil. Mitten im Wahlkampf ist in Ecuador ein Präsidentschaftskandidat ermordet worden. Fernando Villavicencio wurde auf offener Straße in der Hauptstadt Quito erschossen. During a campaign rally in early August 2023, presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio addressed a cheering crowd gathered at a Quito school gymnasium. Fist raised in the air, Villavicencio exclaimed, They told me I'd better wear a bulletproof vest, but here I am wearing a sweaty shirt. You are my bulletproof vest. You are brave people. You are the ones protecting me. Let the drug bosses come. Let the killers come and the extortionists. The time of threats is over. I am here. They may threaten me, but they will never break me. Five years ago, such a fiery campaign speech would have sounded over the top. But Ecuador has changed. 
As 59-year-old Via Facencio stepped onto the street after the campaign event that Wednesday evening, making his way to his car, shots rang out. Via Vicencio, who headed the country's Liberal Construyer or Construct Party, is assassinated in broad daylight, one and a half weeks before Ecuador's presidential elections. His murder was captured on smartphone. Via Vicencio's stunned uncle told the press. This is a horror movie. 30, 40 shots were fired from machine guns. Via Vicencio was a journalist and a member of parliament who worked tirelessly to expose and fight corruption, warning of the influence of organised crime in Ecuador. That's why Via Vicencio was placed under police protection, but his bodyguard and armoured car were removed just before his murder. We don't understand where the police went. Where was his bodyguard? Fernando received threats constantly and was recently threatened by a criminal group. I do not understand where the police was to protect Fernando's life and that of those with him. Ecuador has been rocked by an unprecedented wave of violence and Via Vicencio has become its most prominent victim. This is a political crime of a terrorist nature. We have no doubt this attack is an attempt to sabotage the electoral process. Following Via Vicencio's murder, Ecuador's incumbent president, Guillermo Lasso, imposed a 60-day state of emergency and called in the US FBI to support the murder investigation. Nevertheless, Ecuador's presidential elections went ahead in late August, but Via Vicencio's successor, an investigative journalist named Christian Zarita, only came in third with 16% of the vote. Drug-related violence is still an issue, though. The small country, which once enjoyed a good reputation, now has one of Latin America's highest murder rates, surpassing Mexico, Central America and Brazil. What went wrong? One third of Ecuador's violent crimes are reported in the country's Guayas province, along the Pacific coast. It's home to the city of Guayaquil, Ecuador's largest port, which plays a key role in the country's exports. With one leap, the Belgian shepherd jumps onto a banana box, sniffs, then turns away, continuing to sniff other crates elsewhere. A row of over a thousand such boxes are lined up in front of the sniffer dog in the port of Guayaquil. Police officers removed them from a refrigerated container and opened each one of them. Some 50 sniffer dogs are deployed by the port. This is the product we search most often, bananas. It's our country's number one export product. That's why bananas are also most often contaminated. Bananas are shipped along routes that drug traffickers are most interested in. Out of five containers, one is usually contaminated. Contaminated. That's what Major Fernando Estevez Rivadonera calls shipments containing concealed drug parcels. Rivadonera heads Guayaquil Port's anti-drug police squad. Around 3,500 to 4,000 containers are shipped out of the port of Guayaquil every week, of which authorities get around to checking only about one-third. They don't have container scanners installed yet. Two such devices have arrived, but they're not yet in use, says Rivadonera. That's why he and his team focus on checking containers destined for Europe. 
containers headed to Antwerp in Rotterdam, followed by Germany, Spain and Italy. UN drug reports show that Europe has become the main buyer of South American cocaine, especially since the pandemic. There was a kind of overproduction of cocaine which was shipped out. There was a veritable high-quality cocaine glut at stable prices. But European demand is going up and up. And I wonder, what policies are there in Europe regarding the war on drugs? Ecuador, which lies between the world's two largest cocaine producers, Colombia and Peru, has transformed into a major export hub for the drug. Ecuador's anti-drug chief, General Pablo Ramirez, estimates that around 45% of Colombian cocaine is exported through Ecuador. Last year, over 200 tonnes of the drug were seized, 61 tonnes alone at the port of Guayaquil. In Europe, that amount of cocaine would be worth more than 8 billion euro. Well, there is a certain institutional weakness that can be exploited by foreign gangs. We're quite a small country and dealing with global criminal networks that have enormous financial resources. For example, a truck driver who helped hide a ton of cocaine was promised a fee of 100 to 200 thousand dollars. We tour the port and soon understand what he means. Trucks drive in and out of the area, while dock workers stand in front of stacks of shipping containers, smoking and waiting. Heavy tugboats collect the containers, bringing them to the container terminal, where giant cranes load them into huge freighters. Container ships leaving port then pass through the Gaia River Delta en route to the Pacific Ocean. The Delta is a meandering labyrinth of canals, islands and dense mangrove forests with makeshift wooden houses precariously perched on stilts dotted in between. This is where Guayaquil's poor live. And this is also where criminal gangs solicit helpers to get cocaine onto freighters and out to sea. They blackmail the ones who can't be bought off with a few dollars. The Navy and Coast Guard are based here, patrolling the waters and escorting freighters until they reach the open sea. But we have information that they keep getting contaminated by pirates. Criminals use speedboats or fishing barges to reach the sluggish freighters. They climb on deck and hide drugs aboard the ship. They're often aided by accomplices on the vessels. It's frustrating sometimes. The drug cartels are much better equipped and organized than they were a few years ago. Sometimes it feels like we're lagging behind because they keep changing tactics. There are several explanations why Ecuador has become the power and distribution centre of Latin American drug smuggling. Security expert Renato Rivera of the Ecuadorian Organized Crime Observatory in Quito. More drugs are being shipped across the Pacific today than ever before. Production has increased in cocaine-producing countries, especially since the peace deal with Colombia's FARC guerrillas. Different criminal gangs have taken control of cultivating and transporting drugs in areas from which FARC has withdrawn since 2016. Mexico's powerful Sinaloa and Jalisco Nueva Generación drug cartels are pushing into South America. They now call the shots. 
The cartels pay Colombian guerrilla groups producing cocaine. They pay for its transport to Ecuador and hire local gangs to smuggle the drugs to Europe and to the US. European mafias, primarily Albanian, now largely control drug smuggling via seaports. These are the sounds of a video made on a smartphone showing a hooded man holding a power scythe and shredding a huge pile of dark green coca leaves. This is one step in the cocaine production process. In Colombia, a kilo of cocaine sells for around a thousand US dollars. Once it reaches Ecuador, the price rises to between two and three thousand dollars. In Europe, a kilo of cocaine fetches around forty thousand dollars. The video was reportedly shot at a drug lab in the border region of Colombia and Ecuador. We're meeting a man who says there are many more labs like this one under his control. He works as a sicario, or contract killer. He doesn't want to be recognised, so we're calling him Daniel and altering his voice. I'm in charge of social cleansing. That means killing people, traitors and troublemakers from other gangs, you know? We clean our territory so it's clear we're in control, so that the goods can flow in and there's always enough product. Daniel's wiry stature and shy smile belie his brutal past. His father was killed when he was four. At 13, Daniel joined Colombia's FARC guerrillas to avenge him and escape poverty. Over his life, Daniel has killed so many people that he's lost count. At 19, he briefly joined the Colombian peace process, but after a year, returned to his old life of crime. Now he's part of Colombia's dissidencia, breakaway FARC rebels who never joined the peace process in the first place, or abandoned it along the way. The FARC are no longer the FARC. Now they are narco groups. We used to fight for the people. Today, you fight for money. In my eyes, the peace process was the biggest crime committed by the Colombian state. At that time, many rebel leaders went to Ecuador and created their own groups. Today, there are way too many groups and there is way too much violence. This war will not be easy to end. A bloody proxy war has erupted, orchestrated by the drug cartels, whose drug money is bankrolling former guerrilla groups in the border region, along with half a dozen criminal gangs in Ecuador. There's no shortage of money or weapons, an intelligence officer tells us in the capital, Quito. The situation has deteriorated rapidly because Ecuador has no security policy and no political will. In the news, we keep seeing that large quantities of drugs are being seized. But we don't see any crackdowns on the organizations, their leaders or logistics. No action is taken against money laundering. Today, institutions like the prosecutor's office, the police and the armed forces, as well as central government, have become infiltrated by organised crime. And that's exactly what the murdered Ecuadorian presidential candidate, Via Vicencio, had criticised time and time again. We're joining a nighttime police patrol in Duran a densely populated working-class suburb of Guayaquil. About half a million people live here. The district is the port city's logistical bottleneck and one of the most dangerous districts in the Pacific region. Victor Valencia, one of the police officers, says they suspect heavy weapons are hidden in one of the area's nondescript family homes. When nobody opens the door, officers smash through a wall to enter. 
A neighbour spots the officers forcing their way into the house. Angrily, she yells at them, asking if they're trying to plant something on the residence. A nervous young boy runs across the road, scared. Ultimately, the police officers find nothing except for three cartridge cases. We expected to find one or two heavy weapons and ammunition. But the criminal gangs keep changing their hiding places because they know the state of emergency means we can raid any house. That day, officers detain a dealer, three motorcycle thieves and a suspected forger. A state of emergency has been in effect along Ecuador's Pacific coast since July, when a mayor and city council candidate were killed there. The mayor of Duran narrowly escaped an assassination attempt in May. His bodyguards, two policemen from Valencia's unit, were killed in the attack, say colleagues. This is clearly about marking turf. It's about spreading terror, using methods that are really only known from the Mexican cartels. They hung two corpses from a bridge, hands tied and tape around their heads. The truth is we have no control and the gangs continue operating. We can't do much to stop them. The assassins have long guns and rifles. We have old cars and pistols. Many of us don't even have protective vests. Valencia's unit and others are facing growing danger. But trying to address the increase in violence just by deploying police and military units won't work, says Duran Police Chief Jorge Hadathi. The more desperate people are, the more poverty there is, the more violence there will be. Where there are no jobs, where basic services are lacking and there are no parks where kids can play sports, of course people will become susceptible to criminal networks and contribute to the security problem. Here in the streets where children once played football and neighbours sat together listening to music and drinking, residents are now wary staying in behind locked doors. These days, no one dares walk these streets, says a middle-aged man who asks we refer to him as Juan Perez. The man lives in Guasamo Sur, a neighbourhood in a strategically important location further along Guaya River, along the route from the port of Guayaquil and the district of Duran. Gangs are fighting for control over this area. From here, they smuggle the drugs into the containers. Things took a turn for the worse in December 2022, says Juan Perez, when gangster boss Jorge Luis Zambrano, a.k.a. Rascrinia, was killed. The leader of the Chineros, Ecuador's most powerful gang, had almost exclusive control over the country's drug smuggling routes. His killing, however, sparked power struggles with other groups trying to seize power and new structures emerging. In Guasamosur, gangs literally fought for control over individual streets. Life here is full of fear, full of anxiety. We live on a front line. One gang controls the area from here to about 10 blocks away. After that, a different gang is in charge and so on. At night, we hear motorcycles speeding by. We hear gunshots. We see dead bodies lying on street corners. 
Two weeks ago, they killed a gang leader. So soon, there will be revenge. Only you don't know when. Here, children, pregnant women get caught in the crossfire. They don't care. They don't care. Juan Perez says that during the pandemic, many people here lost their jobs. And that for many, working as dealers, scouts and drug couriers for the gangs was a way out of financial misery. Some were forced to work for the criminals. Many were paid in kind, with weapons or drugs, which made a bad situation even worse. Kids here grow up with these gangs. They grow up with that culture. They don't want to be lawyers or engineers. They want to be like the neighborhood capo. To those who want to intimidate the state, I say, we will not give in. We will not give up power and our democratic institutions to organized crime. Defiant words spoken by Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso after the assassination of presidential candidate Fernando Villafacencio in August. But the war on drugs that Lasso's government has launched with US financial support is ineffective, says security expert Luis Cordova. He leads the research program on order, conflict and violence at the Central University of Ecuador. This basically means eliminating gang leaders in order to weaken the criminal organization. But this approach already failed in Mexico and has only led to an atomization of the criminal structure in Ecuador, as well as brutal prison massacres, which are now massively overcrowded and controlled by gangs. What happens in the streets is a reflection of what happens in the prisons. Penitencia El Litoral is Ecuador's largest prison and located on a busy road in the north of Guayaquil. It's designated to hold about 5,000 inmates, though in reality some 12,000 prisoners are incarcerated at the complex. Women are lined up outside, waiting to visit husbands, sons, brothers locked up inside. Myra Gildo, who everyone calls Katie, is one of them. You cannot take anything inside, not even a tampon if you're a woman and you're menstruating. And I had to pay for every visit, 15 to $20, transferred to a bank account. Inside, you need to pay for everything because the food is inhumane. A little bit of rice costs $5. A little meat costs $20. If you don't have money, you sleep on the floor. And many people have tuberculosis. You need to pay the guards $300 for a cell phone, $50 for the SIM card, and another $50 to use it. Ecuador's prisons are ruled by gangs. They control entire prison wings and collect protection money from relatives. And not only that, from within the prisons, they also orchestrate smuggling operations, contract killings and corruption, says Cordova. This is a distinct and profitable business model used by the gangs to finance themselves. The question is, how can it be that it relies on payments sent through the financial system? Clearly, if this money flow is not stopped, there is no way the power of the gangs in prisons will be broken. Katie's husband Francisco used drugs. When police found small amounts of drugs on him, he was handed a 30-month sentence for dealing and locked up in a prison wing alongside murderers and extortionists. Katie had to pay $800 to have her husband move to a different part of the prison. But it didn't help. 
On the night of November 12, 2021, Francisco was brutally murdered, along with 64 other inmates. There have been more than a dozen massacres in Ecuador's prisons since early 2023, with more than 600 dead, half of them in Guayaquil's El Litoral prison. The Ecuadorian president sent in the military, imposed states of emergency, but nothing has helped. In June, Katie and dozens of other women gathered outside Guayaquil's Norte Palace of Justice, wearing shirts and holding placards with pictures of their loved ones on them, calling for truth, justice and reparations in light of these grim circumstances. They've joined forces and founded the Committee of Family Members for Justice in Ecuador's prisons. Their activism compelled authorities to set up the first ever hearing on the prison massacres, for which, so far, not a single person has been held accountable. It was not just one massacre. There were many. They happened over and over. And nobody says anything. There are not even condolence messages. The state has lost control over the prisons and over the country. What am I supposed to tell my daughter when she asks me, why is dad not coming home? The November 2021 massacre in which Katie's husband Francisco was killed was ordered by the head of the Chaneros gang, Adolfo Fito Macias. It's allied with the Sinaloa cartel, according to research by the Ecuadorian news site GK. Adolfo Macias began serving a 34-year sentence in Guayaquil's El Litoral prison in 2011, where he resides in a luxurious private suite. He is also believed to be behind the assassination of presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio. On August 12th, Adolfo Macias was transferred to the prison's maximum security wing. Jennifer Collins presenting that in-depth feature by Anna Herberg. And if you're looking for more DW podcasts, here's one idea. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. Imagine if someone promised to double your money within a year by investing in medical cannabis. Would you believe it? This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. And the scam might just go on. I've lost 20k. I had 350,000 euros in the account. I lost a lot of money myself. But even worse is that I encouraged my own son to invest in Juicy Fields. Juicy Fields. These scammers They had brought in psychologists. They had brought in people who are professionally human behavior. This is a story about greed. If you invest 20K, you'll have 90K in just five years. I think people are surprised that we're offering a good investment. Money, money green, you know, like everybody likes money. And it's the story of an industry in a gold rush. Canada is venturing where no industrialized nation has gone before by legalizing marijuana. And as coalition talks progress here in Germany, there's one thing the three parties hoping to govern together do agree on, legalizing cannabis. There's a lot of fake consultants. There's a lot of people that say we got this, we got that, and they don't have anything. This is Cannabis Cowboys. 
A story about big dreams, juicy money and never-ending hype. Brought to you by DW. In this investigative podcast series, we take you to where the cannabis cowboys worked and schemed. This is where Juicy Fields started. We are standing there a week after the scam exploded. Since then, everybody is kind of like running around like headless chickens. We share our doubts. The equivalent would be roughly 280 billion US dollars going in and going out again. Wow. wow. Maybe this is the Juicy Fields account? Yeah. Maybe it's not. Maybe. But we have to find out more about this address. And we take you into a world that we didn't expect to enter when we started this investigation. It bears all the trademarks for Russian mafia. And they know exactly how this is done. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very bad. Stop fantasy. Kommt einem auch irgendwie so irreal. It just feels surreal, like you're in a gangster movie. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. That's our show for this week. For more World in Progress content, go to dw.com slash worldinprogress or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jennifer Collins, who helped put together this episode. The studio team was Liebke Tegtmeier, Jana Stegemann and Leon Novak. I'm Sarah Steffen. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.